0: chapter eight of the women of the french revolution by winifred stevens this librivox recording is in the public domain eight charlotte corday hearts must not sink at seeing law lie dead no corday no else justice had not crowned in heaven thy head profaned below three women france hath borne each greater far than all her men and greater many were than any are at sword or pen corneille the first among gaul's rhymer race whose soul was free descends from his high station proud to trace his line in the w s lander unlike many of the women in the last chapter charlotte corday the most self-possessed the most determined and the most dignified of all revolutionary armed women kept her own counsel all too well for that reason she needlessly sacrificed her life for her country to which had she lived she might have rendered valuable service had they only known her intention said charlotte's fellow politicians they could have directed her knife to a much more profitable quarter than the heart of marat whom disease had already condemned to an imminent death the angel of assassination as lamartine calls charlotte corday appears to many as one of the most striking examples of the complete heroine it seems appropriate therefore that she should number among her direct ancestors that most heroic of tragic dramatists pierre corneille charlotte was born during that seventh decade of the eighteenth century which saw the birth of nearly all the revolution heroes and heroines at Ronceray, in a picturesque norman farmhouse on the twenty seventh of july seventeen sixty eight marie charlotte jacqueline de corday gave birth to her fifth child her third daughter a second marie charlotte to be known among her own people and in history as charlotte her family belonged to la petite noblesse her parents were what we should call country gentry living on their own land her father jacques François de corday knight and seigneur d'armont brought up his children in habits of the strictest economy to this youthful training are due no doubt the orderliness and attention to detail which all the records of charlotte's life reveal and which are seldom found in one of her idealist temperament she was a pretty child with glorious golden hair a dazzling complexion and good features dreamy and silent she loved to wander alone through the woods and fields which surrounded her home she was still a child when her father's resources grew so restricted that he was glad to farm out his children with more prosperous relatives a priest-uncle a worthy and cultured person highly respected in the neighbourhood received charlotte and taught her to read in a precious heirloom a valuable edition of her illustrious ancestor's plays thus early did charlotte drink of that well of patriotic heroism which was to remain the source of all her inspiration at the age of twelve charlotte lost her mother who died in giving birth to her sixth child and for a while the Cardes lived at Caen, while the seigneur d'Armont was conducting with his wife's relatives one of those numerous lawsuits in which la petite noblesse seems to have delighted the lawsuit was probably successful seeing that charlotte when she grew up was possessed of some small fortune which enabled her to live independently away from home je vis de mes revenus she told her judges while her father was at Caen, he put charlotte and her sister to school in the famous st trinity convent of the town it was a highly aristocratic institution receiving as a rule no more than five noble maidens of reduced circumstances whom the king himself nominated and it was only by means of high and powerful influence that charlotte and her sisters were admitted there charlotte spent some years and rose to occupy a position of authority in the management of the convent there she doubtless would have continued possibly becoming superior or at any rate canoness, had she and her companions not been driven out when in seventeen ninety the national assembly decreed the suppression of all convents charlotte then joined her father and sisters in the country with her determined will and pronounced opinions she could not have found it easy to settle down in family life while her father and brothers were royalists and catholics charlotte was sceptical and republican i was a republican before the revolution she said to her judges always of a studious and thoughtful disposition like madame roland she had spent her girlhood in company with the heroes of greece and rome and in drinking deep of eighteenth-century philosophy plutarch's lives was her breviary and with passionate interest she was already following all the events of the revolution we are not surprised therefore to find that after a few months in the family circle she left it and returned to Caen there she lived with an aged relative madame de breteville in a set of rooms in a dilapidated old house known as le grand manoir occupying the back of a courtyard in the centre of the city that by this time charlotte had grown into a beautiful girl there is no doubt the exact colour of her hair whether her eyes were blue or grey whether she was tall or below the average height has been hotly contended perhaps the description in her passport may be taken as the surest evidence though it is by no means infallible as the recent war has proved according to this document charlotte's hair was chestnut brown her eyes grey and her height five feet one as to her manner there is no diversity of opinion all agreed that she was graceful and dignified still pensive talking little in society and on the rare occasions when she took part in conversation startling her companions by her opinions thus at a family dinner-party in honour of charlotte's brother and a friend whom it was hoped she would marry both on the eve of starting to join the émigré army the king's health was proposed charlotte refused to drink it what exclaimed one of the guests you refuse to drink the health of our king who is so good and virtuous i believe him to be virtuous she replied but a weak king cannot be good for he is incapable of preventing his people's misfortunes but charlotte's republicanism like that of olympe de gouge did not prevent her deploring the king's execution she was by this time as we have said intensely interested in the important events going forward a diligent newspaper reader and a careful student of the hundreds of pamphlets for and against the revolution that the press was constantly pouring forth her sympathies were with the party of la Gironde especially after the girondist members of the convention who had been proscribed on the thirty first of may seventeen ninety three had made charlotte's city of caen the center of the insurrection they were trying to raise against the jacobin government buzot Pition, louvet barbarou and other girondins were appealing to the people of normandy to march on paris and there to overthrow the dictatorship of the convention charlotte attended all their meetings her silent enthusiasm enhanced her beauty Wrote one who saw her there. She wept to hear the Girondins tell of the anarchy prevailing throughout her beloved France. Charlotte's was a practical nature. No sooner had she realized the existence of an evil than her mind flew to devise remedies. It seemed then that one man, Marat, the so called people's friend, was in reality the people's enemy and cause of all their suffering. Marat was one of the most prolific journalists and pamphleteers of the day with his turbulent brain goaded to fury by the perpetual irritation of an agonizing skin disease in page after page each more vehement than the last he clamored for blood and for more blood all these writings charlotte read until marat became an obsession a veritable antichrist if only his pen could cease writing his brain cease devising horrors then her poor country might at length find peace this was charlotte's one idea she never paused to ask whether some other tyrant might not take marat's place she knew no conflict of emotions such as her ancestor the great corneille loved to portray no sooner had she realized that marat was a ferocious beast about to devour france with the fire of civil war than she determined to destroy him then swiftly inevitably she sped towards her tragic goal the idea first occurred to her she told her judges on the thirty first of may seventeen ninety three Only seven short weeks elapsed before the deed was done. During that brief space, Charlotte was busy making arrangements for her journey to Paris. There was a passport to be procured on the pretext of presenting a petition to the convention on behalf of a friend, an émigré who was in great poverty in Switzerland. Then there were introductions to people in Paris who might be useful. These she obtained from the Girondist leaders. Barbaroux especially she often saw she talked with him about public affairs and he gave her a letter to the deputy du Perret. after charlotte's death barbaroux said that on her last visit something in her voice filled him with a vague foreboding he could not understand afterwards he wished he had known her design for he said if we the girondin had been capable of a crime by such a hand it was not marat we should have pointed out for vengeance but Charlotte never by word or look or any sign hinted at the project she had in mind. The poet Andre Chénier never wrote truer lines than these dedicated to Charlotte. Sous les dehors d'une allégresse aimable, dans ses detours profonds, ton âme impénétrable avait tenu caché les destins du pervers. It is not surprising that during those weeks, Madame de Bretteville found Charlotte more than usually preoccupied. Once she discovered her in tears i weep said charlotte over my country's misfortunes over those of my family and over yours for while marat lives no one can be sure of life for even a day there is a legend that one morning when madame de bretteville went into charlotte's room to awaken her she found on her bed an ancient bible open at the book of judith and at a page on which was the verse judith went forth from the city adorned with a marvellous beauty which the lord had bestowed on her to deliver israel before finally leaving Caen for paris charlotte went into the country to bid her father and sisters farewell she told them she was about to emigrate to england where she had friends then returning to Caen, she told madame de bretteville that she was going on a sketching expedition into the country so on the ninth of july she set out carrying a small bundle of clothes a copy of plutarch's lives and a large sheet of drawing-paper the last she gave to a little boy the son of one of the tenants of the house whom she met at the foot of the staircase here robert she said take this it is for you be a good boy and kiss me you will never see me again as the child kissed her he felt a tear upon his cheek in the Paris diligence charlotte's beauty so bewitched a fellow-traveller that he inquired her name and the address of her family in order that he might ask her hand in marriage she seized with the grim irony of the situation promised to tell him later it was noon on thursday the eleventh of july when the con diligence rumbled into paris charlotte engaged a room at the hotel de la providence seventeen rue des vieux augustins worn out with her journey she went to bed at five o'clock and slept soundly until the next day friday when she rose betimes and went to Duperez's house hoping to see him and to present her letter of introduction from barbaroux but Duperez, she was told was at the convention and would not be home until evening charlotte returned to her hotel and passed the rest of the day in reading and meditation until six o'clock when she returned to Duperez. he was at dinner but he left the table to come and talk to charlotte in the salon he promised to take her the next day to sigara the minister of the interior to whom she wished to speak about her friend in switzerland Charlotte advised Duperré to flee from Paris to Caen before the next night her manner as well as her words were mysterious said the deputy afterwards that very friday evening the possessions of Duperré who was known to be in sympathy with the proscribed girondins were placed under the government's seal nevertheless early the next morning Duperré kept his promise to Charlotte and took her to garras they failed to see him however and Duperré advised charlotte to abandon her intervention on her friend's behalf seeing that she had no written authority to act for her the deputy took charlotte to her hotel and left her there soon afterwards she went out to the palais royal there she purchased not a dagger as some have said but an ordinary table-knife for which she paid three francs concealing it beneath her kerchief she sat down for a while on a stone bench in one of the colonnades charlotte's design had been to slay marat in the convention afterwards she fully expected to be set upon and killed by the mob thus she would die unknown unrecognized leaving no record to shame her family since arriving in paris however she had heard that marat was now too ill to go to the convention or even to leave his house she must make some other plan therefore and thus much against her will she was compelled to resort to deception so she brought herself to address a note to the man she hated offering to give him news of the camp insurrection as to when and how this note was delivered historians differ some say charlotte posted it and that it did not reach marat until the evening shortly before charlotte's final and fatal visit to his house others that she delivered it herself there seems to be no doubt that she went at least twice once in the morning and again in the evening to marat's house number twenty rue des cordeliers now rue de l'école de Médecine. it is equally certain that the first time she failed to gain admission the interval or intervals between these calls she spent at her hotel writing an appeal to posterity and a second letter to marat intended to be a final appeal and imploring him to see her on the ground that she was unfortunate a sufferer in the cause of liberty she also changed her frock in the morning she had worn brown in the evening her dress was pure white or according to some witnesses of a spotted material at any rate she dressed with great care and about seven o'clock set out again to drive to the rue des cordeliers having arrived there charlotte stopped her coach on the opposite side of the street again the concierge refused her admission marat so diseased that after four years of suffering he said he would give all the dignities and honors in the world for a few days of health lived in perpetual dread of assassination though there was constant coming and going in the house of the editor and proprietor of l'ami du peuple none but assured friends or denouncers strongly recommended were actually admitted to the editor's presence charlotte this time refused to accept the dismissal of the concierge marat's mistress simone evrard came to the door and guessing charlotte to be the writer of the letter marat had just received she went to ask him whether he would receive the visitor he consented and simon showed charlotte through an antechamber into marat's study which was also his bathroom there simon withdrew taking care to leave the door partly open so that she might hear the slightest sound the room in which charlotte now found herself was small and dimly lighted its most striking article of furniture was the slipper-bath in which the wretched marat spent his days and nights only his head shoulders the upper part of his chest and his right arm were visible as on the last time we saw him in madame tallien's salon a dirty scarf was tied round his matted hair accentuating the receding forehead protruding eyes prominent cheek-bones and vast sneering mouth only in this posture with the greater part of his body bathed in water could marat endure his miserable existence across the bath was placed a plank which served as a writing-table it was covered with papers open letters and half-written articles beside the bath on a large block of oak stood a leaden inkstand when charlotte entered marat was holding his pen suspended over a half-written page a letter he was writing to the convention demanding the proscription of the last bourbons who remained in france he asked charlotte about the state of normandy inquired the names of the girondist deputies who had fled to caen and when she gave them exclaimed well before they are a week older they shall have the guillotine at these words charlotte drew the knife she had bought that morning from her kerchief and with unerring aim plunged it up to the handle into marat's heart then withdrew it death was almost instantaneous marat had only time to cry to simone for help simone rushed in she found the printer's messenger and the cook wrestling with charlotte who had been thrown to the ground simone vainly endeavored to stay the tide of blood streaming from marat's heart with her hand a surgeon-dentist who lived in the house bandaged the wound took marat from the bath and put him on his bed but his pulse had already ceased to beat the grief of simone and of her sister catherine who in a few minutes was in the room alone among the terrible incidents that followed the assassination threatened to deprive charlotte of her self-possession hitherto she had thought of marat as a savage monster hardly human i killed one to save a thousand she said now Simone's and Catherine's tears revealed her victim as a fellow creature, a man passionately loved by women. But she had barely time to reflect before the little room was full. The tidings of the murder of Marat quickly ran through the district. Neighbors flocked in, and soon they were followed by police officers and members of the Comité de Sûreté Générale the latter there in the antechamber while in the next room marat's corpse was being laid out and preparations for its embalment were being made began charlotte's cross-examination her interrogators made every effort to elicit from the accused something to show that she had acted as an agent of the persecuted girondin but even in that grim and horrible situation charlotte kept her wits about her one of her interrogators had the effrontery to put his hand behind her fichu expecting he said to find some paper to incriminate the girondins charlotte's hands were bound she could not defend herself with them but with her body she repulsed the aggressor so forcibly that he fell back and at the same time the fastenings of her bodice gave way the other members of the committee horrified by their colleague's brutality caused her hands to be set free so that she might readjust her frock they also allowed her to put gloves on her hands beneath the chains this terrible interrogation lasted until two o'clock on Sunday morning. Only then was it decided to convey the accused to the abbaye prison. Crowds still surrounded the house crying for vengeance on the assassin of the people's friend. As the door opened and Charlotte appeared, the mob rushed forward with so fierce a cry of terror that for the first and only time Charlotte's courage entirely forsook her and she fainted. When she recovered consciousness she was astonished to find herself alive in the abbaye prison to which she was now conducted the cell she occupied was that in which madame roland had been imprisoned only a few weeks earlier three days later charlotte was transferred to the conciergerie there she wrote two letters they are in the heroic style of her great ancestor and as she no doubt intended they have become famous one was to barbaroux the other to her father in both she was obviously bent on representing herself as entirely serene knowing that her letters would be read by others than those to whom they were addressed she magnified the importance of the Girondist rising she little knew that the insurrection was already suppressed that her own deed had been the one result of girondist propaganda in normandy and that the girondist rebels had been completely routed by the jacobin army at vernon she told barbaroux that the courage of the girondist volunteers whom she saw set out for paris on july eighth had finally determined her to slay Marat that which most unnerved her at the time of the assassination she said was the cries of the women but she added he who saves his country must not pause to count the cost to her father charlotte insisted that at one time she had hoped to die unknown yet she bore upon her person her passport which was sufficient proof of her identity indeed once the deed was committed she could not but be proud of it so certain was she that it marked the deliverance of her country by the substitution of peace for anarchy consequently she dates her letter the second day of the preparation of the peace and of her own imminent death she writes that her family may rejoice as they think of her at peace in the elysian fields with brutus and other heroes of antiquity she asks her father's pardon for having disposed of her life without his permission if i sought to persuade you that i was going to england it was because i hoped to remain unknown i trust that you will not be molested but you have those at caen who will protect you i have chosen as my advocate gustave dulcet de but only for form's sake as such a deed admits of no defence adieu my dear papa i pray of you to forget me or rather to rejoice at my fate the cause is noble i kiss my sister whom i love with all my heart do not forget corneille's line le crime fait la honte et non pas l'échafaud already regarding herself as a heroine and desiring that her memory should be perpetuated charlotte allowed her portrait to be painted in prison and asked the painter to send a copy of it to her family the artist told of the close attention she paid to her toilette that while in prison she had spent thirty-six francs on the cap she was to wear at her execution she was methodical in all her ways a thimble with a needle and thread were in her pocket at the time of her arrest before leaving caen she had taken care to make provision for her old nurse she had ordered presents to be sent from shops to some of her girl friends and had distributed among them all her books except the plutarch which she took with her at her trial before the revolutionary tribunal the attempt was repeated to draw from her some confession that might prove her to have been the agent of the girondins who inspired you with such bitter hatred she was asked i did not need any inspiration my own hatred was strong enough but this deed must have been suggested to you deeds are not well executed when they do not come from one's own heart again as at the time of the assassination the grief of marat's mistress and sister unnerved her she could not hear out simon's evidence but cut it short exclaiming yes it was i who killed him Neither could she bear to look at the fatal knife when it was produced for her identification and turning her head away she said in a halting voice yes i rec- recognise it except for these two displays of emotion she remained marvelously self-possessed throughout the trial perceiving that an officer of the national guard was sketching her she smilingly turned towards him in order that he might produce a better likeness the painter hower who had begun her portrait earlier was continuing it in court after her inevitable condemnation returning to her cell for the last hours of life that remained to her she sent for howard to complete his portrait and asked him to send a copy to her family before he had finished the executioner's knock was heard at the sight of the scissors and the red blouse she turned pale and exclaimed already then glancing at the unfinished portrait she said to the artist sir i do not know how to thank you for the trouble you have taken taking the scissors from the executioner she cut off a lock of her hair and gave it to the artist saying sir i thank you for what you have done for me all i have to offer you as a proof of my gratitude is this lock of hair when a priest entered her cell she told him to thank those who had sent him but she did not need his ministrations the only sacrifices i can offer to the eternal she said are the blood i have spilt and my own that i am about to shed at seven o'clock in the evening of the nineteenth of july charlotte passed for the last time beneath the low arched doorway of the conciergerie prison and entered the tumbril awaiting her the crowds were so great that the journey from the prison to the place de la Révolution took two hours barely had the lugubrious procession started when a thunderstorm burst over paris but the sky soon cleared and as the tumbrel passed over le pont neuf and down la rue saint honore the evening sun came out in all its summer splendor and transfigured in its ruddy glow the martyr's noble figure as in perfect serenity she was borne through the howling mob at the sight of the guillotine she turned pale for a moment when her head fell one of the executioner's assistants more than brutal took it up and being a devoted disciple of marat struck it there in the face of the crowd some one said that the dead face blushed a murmur of horror escaped from the assembled throng which would not be satisfied until this gross offender had been imprisoned that one so beautiful and so charming as charlotte should have had suitors was inevitable we have already mentioned the fellow-traveller who having fallen in love at first sight wished to ask her hand in marriage whether she returned the affection of either of her other admirers or whether hatred of marat had driven every other passion from her heart it is impossible to say there is a story that before leaving caen she had corresponded with the youth of the city one franklin and had given him her portrait franklin joined the Girondist volunteers he was present at the review on the eighth of july as he and his comrades marched beneath charlotte's balcony on that memorable sunday Pition, who was near saw her turn pale and weep do you not want them to go he asked and received no reply after charlotte's death franklin withdrew to the depths of the country where he died not long afterwards leaving instructions that charlotte's letters and her portrait should be buried with him in his coffin years later so runs the tale the coffin was opened and found to contain the letters and the picture a better authenticated story is that of the young german from mainz adam lux lux was one of those to whom the revolution seemed to promise the millennium he and his fellow-townsmen craved for their city the honour of being included in the french republic and Lux was commissioned to go to paris and lay their request before the convention but alas no sooner had he set foot in the french capital than his dream vanished he found the republic a prey to civil strife he saw with horror a beautiful maiden the noble apostle of freedom condemned to sacrifice her life for the cause twice only did Lux actually see charlotte once before the revolution tribunal and then on the scaffold but that was enough henceforth he had no other thought than to rejoin her as it seemed to him he might by sharing her fate the guillotine beneath which she had suffered became to him an altar he too aspired to die beneath its blade he implored the convention to accord him that high honour at the same time he demanded that a statue in memory of charlotte inscribed with the words greater than brutus should be erected to her memory on the place where she had died so assiduously did he court death by attacks upon the convention and the jacobins that he was arrested and condemned he followed charlotte to the guillotine on the fourth of november seventeen ninety three the story of adam luke's would seem to prove the truth of michelet's saying that in charlotte's blood a religion was founded but the same might be said with truth of marat's blood for marat's admirers were as devoted as charlotte's and far more numerous among them were multitudes of women women in paris and in the provinces women more especially of the revolutionary clubs for Marat, among all the leaders of the revolution had been most ready to make use of women by a strange irony of fate it was he who had proposed to arm with daggers the women of the republican and revolutionary club Les clubistes of Macon called themselves Marat's holy women, Saint Femme, and venerated Marat as a prophet. Crowds of women mingled in the funeral processions and pageants on the sixteenth, eighteenth, and twenty eighth of July, which were so many triumphal processions in honor of Charlotte Corday's victim. The republican and revolutionary women claimed to have originated the idea of erecting an obelisk to Marat on la place de la Reunion, now la place du Carrousel. Though men denied them this honor, the records of the jacobin club show that on the fifteenth of august pauline leon then president of the saint eustache club led a deputation to the jacobin to ask them to contribute to the obelisk as it happened only a temporary wooden obelisk was erected but in the august ceremony of its inauguration which was worthy of a more permanent memorial women played a prominent part setting out in procession from their saint eustache charnel-house they took up their places behind the historic bath and bore on a litter the relics of their prophet his chair table pen and inkstand these women had followed charlotte with curses to the guillotine for them and for others like olympe de gouge though she was not a maratiste marat's assassin was an inhuman monster a byword for infamy maratiste newspapers would not even allow her to have been beautiful they described her as a hard-featured virago whose face was covered with pimples her unwomanly deed dealt a heavy blow at the feminist cause which as we shall see was already declining it was no less fatal to the political party to which she belonged she ruins us but she teaches us how to die cried girondin vergniaud in prison End of chapter eight